0: Hi, everybody. This is Charlie at To Hell and Back, and I'm here with Andrea Gold. Hi, Andrea. Hello. Hello. And, um, and, and you may have, um, you may have come across our previous podcast. It would have been just over four weeks ago, and you can go back and listen to it because uh, this is sort of part two of a conversation with Andrea who is, uh, I, I introduced her last time, but she's a, a PhD psychologist who's at Brown University and uh, at Bradley Medical Center? Um,
1: Hospital.
0: Bradley Hospital in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. And, and she's a DBT expert. And the reason we're doing the podcast is that she's um, six months ago, six months ago today? Tomorrow. Six months ago tomorrow, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And now she's been going through six months of that, of the whole the whole a zillion-step journey. Um uh, and and so she's talking about what she's been going through, how she's been coping with it, and in that context, talking about um sometimes talking about DBT skills that have helped her. Actually, after the last podcast, and in following some of the things she's written online in a, a certain place where you, uh, she communicates to people who follow how she's doing, I, I made a list, Andrea, of the DBT skills that you've used. It's like you've used like multiple, multiple skills from every module in DBT from four modules. You've probably used like 75 skills. I swear to God, it was really, and some of them, it really is interesting to do that because some of them really, really stand out as what you need every time you encounter another hazard or another difficult spot, such as mindfulness and radical acceptance. It's just over and over. You realize those are like foundational skills. And I just, so that's what we're doing. And I I thought I'd ask Andrea first I'm going to assume that you have access to the previous podcast, so she doesn't need to tell her whole story again of how this all happened and got diagnosed and what the early stages were. But I want her to bring us up to date. Um, the, you know, a month has gone by since we talked, and a, just a shitload of stuff has happened in a month. Sorry for the language, but-
1: I think my eyebrows might have doubled in a month, actually.
0: Oh, they're coming back. Coming
1: back, yeah. Yeah um which right right there is a dialectic you know i look at myself on the screen talking to you charlie and i see eyebrows that are both gone and disappeared on the one hand when i compare them to pre cancer or see old pictures of me and then they're also growing and luscious and and you know like there when i compare them to um you know the past couple months of oh. of surviving you know the hells of chemo and I think um I appreciate you looking at the skills and dialectics is such a such a key part of it that I want to talk about throughout um but yes. in this past month it seems like so much has happened it's it's really remarkable to think about so um when we when we talked on the first podcast, I rang my mindfulness bell to celebrate finishing six six cycles a full eighteen weeks of a chemo called t c h p um, for my breast cancer. That's HER2 positive. And um, cancer centers, I didn't I didn't know this um, previously, but cancer centers often have bells so that patients who complete their chemo cycle or their radiation cycle can celebrate. And it's a dialectic. When you get to ring the bell, it's beautiful. And for people who don't, for various reasons, it's painful. So my cancer center is Dana-Farber. They don't have one. And I I actually like that thinking about the big picture of people that are affected yeah, yeah. and at the same time, I want to ring the bell too. And so yeah. I had actually planned to ring it at home. And then the moment just came to me with you, Charlie, and I've just been so touched by people reaching out to me, seeing um, what it meant to them. So I will ring a bell. I intend to ring a bell again in, in going through this next phase. So next up for me, is radiation. I completed my chemo cycle uh, right right. actually the day I considered it completed the day I talked to you. I entered the second phase of my breast cancer treatment, which was my mastectomy, my surgery phase. And next up is radiation. And so for the surgery phase, um, my breast cancer was too ex- ex- extensive for a lumpectomy. My surgeon recommended a mastectomy I was given the choice of whether to just have it on the cancer side or do both sides prophylactically. And I used a decision-making strategy that I think there's DBT in there somewhere, I'm sure. um, Where, you know, I, I am someone who just by my nature agonizes about decisions and I've done a lot of work with exposure therapy to, you know, help with that. And, and the DBT exposure tools. And so, you know, my surgeon said, if you're BRCA positive, I'll recommend it. And if you're not, it's up to you. And this is just one of so many choices that that we make going through cancer that we never want to have to make. Uh, there's a version of hell, I think, in that.
0: You know, and, Andrea, so and, w- yeah. and when you go through, I, and I've noticed when you go through those, I'm just realizing one of the features of that is that. They aren't the kind of decisions that you can wait around forever to make. They aren't like, oh, I'll think about this and then I'll think again about it. And then I'll think in a year about it. It's like I I realize you've been like you've had to make most decisions like in a certain narrow time frame. Right.
1: Right. Like these aren't decisions I I would ever choose to make. And when I have to make them is a shitty time too. like when I have to make them. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think rather than making the choice, it's taking it one step at a time. So realizing, okay, if I have my genetic testing results and I am and I am BRCA positive, there's my decision. I don't have to make it. So why agonize over it now until I have that information? And so I yeah. think there I'm pulling in from from DBT distress tolerance, a crisis survival skill is, is actually pushing away not, not dealing with it. Uh And so kind of putting it on a shelf until it's an effective time to do so. Cause actually deciding before I got the genetic results, I might not even have to make the choice. And so sometimes I did that with my two C-sections actually, uh, or no, my second C-section, I had the option of maybe having a vaginal birth after C-section. There's pros and cons to that. But, you know, if my baby who, who now is born and shared your name, Charlie, you know, if she was breached, I wouldn't have that decision to make. And so I did a, okay, let me wait and see and so it turns out you know I wasn't positive thank goodness that's that's a real wonderful thing about my experience that I don't have that genetic risk factor um, and I had to make this choice and so it was something that I struggled with well will the extra surgery time affect my survival I realized the risk was relatively low made it it was a clear wise mind choice and that didn't bother me afterwards um, I had a decision leading up to to surgery of also do i want to proceed with breast reconstruction after my mastectomy or do what people call going flat and that was something i had agonized about throughout chemo tried using skills and really got stuck time and time again Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: it was after i spoke with you charlie that um it really became clear to me my wise mind was to go flat and not proceed with reconstruction and so I made that choice on a Friday. I um, feel good now that it was the effective choice while accepting that it felt like there were two impossible choices that I was weighing, that they both had really horrible cons with with some valid pros. And I um, kind of- Can I I
0: ask you about this, Andrea? Because I would think that this whole decision about breast reconstruction versus going flat is something people probably don't talk about that much in public. And and it's a s- sensitive and potential for shame and, and anxiety, uncertainty. So could you say a little more about what you took into account so that those people, either if they are going through these decisions who might listen to this or people who know people going through them, that they have the benefit of how you came to this decision?
1: Absolutely. Um... To kind of, I think one of our DBT strategies, the dialectical assessment is one of like looking at what's being left out and what's the context. So not just what's going on with me, Andrea, but what's the environment I'm interacting with? What's the history? What are the systems saying? And so I have, Uh I have on my desk, something that's become our cat's favorite our cat's new favorite cat toy it's it's a foob it's a, people breast cancer um patients and survivors call it foobs for fake boobs and it's this thing just to show you um my surgeon gave me a camisole and a bra to wear after surgery and in this package without any input from me or choice there are these these inserts that are that are supposed to be boobs and so if you just look at this it's this expected thing that women will want reconstruction of their breasts or it's a choice that they should make that I'm like, I don't, I don't want this thing. I don't want to wear hoops. A lot of women do, and that's their choice. And you know, it's I have no judgment for others, but it just shows how, you know, this is, this is an expected thing. Whereas there are a lot of risks and discomfort and pain that come with going the reconstruction route that I don't think it, my take is it shouldn't be an automatic thing. And I've talked to other women who weren't ever given the choice. It was just okay. I'm going to schedule this appointment, and and here we go. And that was new to me. I I was lucky to not have that experience. My surgeon asked me, but I've I've heard that again and again. Um, uh, there are uh, jokes about oh, you get designer boobs, or you get a free boob job, and and there are lots of things I've seen online too about um, a mastectomy isn't a, a breast augmentation. It's it's very different. And um uh, there's uh, there's also the experience of having radiation affects the reconstruction process. And so it's signing up for, um, surgeries after treatment that it's not just a one and done one time thing that for, for my specific case without, I don't want to get into too much detail just because of our time, but you know, uh, it would have been having, expanders to stretch the skin after my mastectomy for a period of time that my surgeon said one in three women have complications, um, which which could be infection, things like that. Then an exchange surgery um, to either replace the expanders with implants or, oh my gosh, I can't pronounce it, autologous tissue. It means your own body's tissue. You're the MD here. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I think that was right. Yeah, I think that was right.
1: And then because I've had radiation, the plastic surgeon had told me, you know, over if I am lucky enough to live uh, you know, a long lifespan. And I had said, what if I live 30 to 40 years? I'm really trying to be hopeful here. How many more surgeries? And she said, two. And so all of these things, and it still might not go well. And these were things I didn't know. So I think, you know, for people who oh. are going through this, that this this is a choice that I, you know, we talked about the dialectic, Charlie of choices I don't want to make and how, how it can be a hell to make choices. I actually think this is a really important choice that women can make for them, for themselves or people who are going through breast cancer could could be men too, you know, are, are making for themselves and not that it's just an assumption or an expectation.
0: So, so, but it, it helps what you just said helps to clarify that it's not, it's not a choice that's going to either increase or decrease the risk of cancer returning. It's all about that once you do a reconstruction, it's going to require future maintenance and uh, interventions, or it might, or it could, it creates another area for trouble Mm -hmm. to happen. And someone might want to do it because it's just very important to them to have reconstruction. And, uh, but, you know, so it's helpful to just hear that was the kind of choice it was. And you had to make that choice. I'm just thinking in the emotional context that you were in of losing your breasts and i just can't imagine what that was like
1: yeah it it's no for me known additional surgeries it it's also that uncertainty about complications um extra discomfort extra recovery time and you know i think thinking about you know, making this choice when I didn't know if my chemo was effective or not. That was the that was a really hellish part is I had chemo and I didn't know if it worked.
0: Right, right, right.
1: If I had my way, I would have postponed that decision till after after chemo, after treatment. And if cancer was free to make that instead um, it's much more complicated to do after radiation because radiation shrinks the skin. And nice. so if I wanted to do reconstruction down the road, now that I've gone flat and didn't have the immediate expanders, it would be a surgery taking muscle out of my back and tissue and just something I know you you may choose that. And if that's your choice, like, great, but it, it wasn't for me. Yeah. And um, I yeah. want to be clear. I'm not saying this to judge other women's choices, but just that it should. No, I you're, it should being, be
0: you're being very clear and very fair. I think you're, I don't think anybody is going to misinterpret what you're saying. No,
1: So That was a big part of this. And, you know, initially I thought my choice. My husband actually said this when we talked about it. My choice. At the time before I got my pathology results, before I knew if chemo worked, was that I can't make a choice right now. And the metaphor I used was um, deciding on whether I want breast reconstruction was like deciding on a house and putting, putting in an offer or signing a mortgage at a time when I am actively at war with cancer. And it was not the effective time to make that choice. And I didn't have that option, really.
0: It's sort of what I meant. I think that was one of the examples I was thinking of. That you had all these choices come at you. The number of choices you've had come at you is huge. Um, you don't want to even start to count them because it's overwhelming. But, but and most, most of them, you've got to decide it today or this week or something like that. That's just different than some things in life. So it's and you're doing it like your metaphor that you're doing it while you're at war. Yeah. Really, that's captures it.
1: The breast reconstruction decision was a tricky one because a huge way that I'm I'm walking through this, fighting cancer, surviving and living at the same time is by really connecting with others, building this relationship with you, my friends, my family, you know, people I know in DBT. And it's harder to talk about Breast with people, um, it's it's a harder thing because I think there's so many judgments, expectations. I think my own self judgments, and so it's something that I really practice opposite action to shame and talking about. And had one friend who I actually reached out to her to to be the one to type out or write down my pros and cons skill for it that I felt like it was too hard to do alone. I and she she did that for me, but it wasn't something that that I felt as open talking about with others and felt still important to do. And so I'm, I'm actually, it's hard and I'm glad that we're, we're talking about it.
0: You know, I'm, and I'm, and I sit here in awe of your bravery in talking about this right now to, of course, I always find with podcasts, of course, who I'm talking to, I have no idea. They're not, they're not there, but there's a a lot of people are going to take advantage of this and your bravery is going to make it easier for people to, give it some thought whereas it just stays underground this kind of this part of the discussion i think and of course when i had the podcast i did with seth this this particular question was not a question there were other equally um challenging moments to make decisions about but it wasn't this um yeah yeah so you made that decision and you went ahead and you went flat and and so and how did that go? And how has it gone? And, and what else has happened?
1: I had, um, well, I had a nice distraction. Distraction is one of our crisis survival skills. And so my distraction was um, after surgery, the next day, I came home an hour after being discharged and got COVID. And so. Oh,
0: that, that's so <laughs> that was so skillful of you.
1: <laughs> it functioned as a distraction. Um, I also oh. had a very, a very minor complication where, um, I don't, I actually don't even know all the scientific details. There's something called a thoracic, I think it's the thoracic duct that's supposed to be higher up. It's common in, um, neck and shoulder surgeries for whatever reason, mine anatomically is different and got cut in the surgery. So I had, I had this chi- thing called a Kyle chi- leak. I had to eat a very ultra low fat diet. So that was another distraction. Um, but you know, I, uh, we know real big complications from surgery. And, um, that was, I came home on a Wednesday and I did not look at my chest initially. I wanted to to take time because I knew it would it would bring up emotions. Um, I think emotions about losing my breasts, what what cancer has taken, emotions about how this looks, my own judgments, my fear of judgments from others. And so I really took my time with that and I think that was helpful. So it you know I took some time to to look just actually just with my own eyes without a mirror. And then when I had my first shower, I chose not to look in the mirror because I felt like that would be too much to the stress of a shower, um, dealing with the surgical drains. But after that, soon after I did, and um, I felt okay, like it was, it was not a, it was not a dreaded, fearful moment. Um, And, and it's something I'm, I'm in the process of accepting and getting used to, but, but there's been so much going on with my whole family having COVID. Um, and we, you know, I think there's going to be a lot, I think acceptance is never linear and I feel that more and more now that it's going to kind of come and go at different places. But, but one of the best things that grabbed my attention was leading into the surgery, um, my oncologist said, you know, what we, what we hope for is something called a PCR, a pathological complete response. And meaning that, that the cancer, the chemo, excuse me, melts away all of the cancer. And she had given me with my age and my staging combined with clinical trials, a 50-50 chance of getting that. So that was, that was the ultimate uncertainty was 50-50. And I, I actually found out, quickly after on, on the Saturday, after the Tuesday that my medical records showed PCR. And so we had some time. Yay. (laughs)
0: That's so good. So good.
1: We felt that beautiful news and, and it was what I've been hoping for. Wow. Um, and it also brought up okay, and now there is the risk of recurrence. So there, there is this. It's hard. Our minds just want to jump to the next thing.
0: No, and I was I think thinking
1: deliberate practice into that.
0: Uh, by the way, trivial side note: when you said PCR tests, of course, the other thing people think is it's a COVID test. So it's funny that these things came at the same time. So, you know, but this was a way better PCR yeah. than the COVID test, and. Um, and yeah, so you would think okay, now you've now you've navigated through the question of what that test is going to be and did has cancer been removed from your body? And you get that positive answer, but you don't have much relief before you start thinking, oh, now what? Now I'm what I'm. What does this mean? Does this is, does not mean I'm back to the way it was before I had cancer? Not at all, right? I don't
1: think such thing i I I don't think there is i see that a lot i'm in a lot of online support groups message boards to get information and you know people saying i just want to go back to how things were um i I actually offered to talk to a woman who's trying to decide about reconstruction or flat and she asked me do you feel like your normal self yet um and and i just i said well it depends on what normal means you know right there there's there's a judgment and we're always changing
0: Right. So right.
1: I, I think that's been something I've just kind of known in my gut even before I had cancer is it's it's not a going back to normal kind of thing. And your life changes forever once you once you get that diagnosis. Or at least mine mine has. Um and so for me it's been a matter of really growing from it, growing from this thing that's growing while getting it the fuck out of my body. Um and and so you know, slowing down and taking time to celebrate the good news and continue continue on with treatment too has been happening at the same time. But
0: I, I was thinking, you know, because you have an, a big interest and in you had said before this podcast that you wanted to make sure and say some things about being dialectical. And mm-hmm. it just seems to me that you've already given examples of that. Like one is that you, you're celebrating at the same moment, you're buckling down to the next step of treatment. I mean, because you told me about that radiation is now going to proceed anyway in order to mop up what could potentially could be some still some cancer cells. Right. So treatment goes on. It's still there. But on the other hand, it's not there. I mean, that's one thing. Another thing is like I'm in the war against cancer and I need my problem solving to make this technical decision about which direction to go. And another thing that you're like an exemplary of for me, you'll probably be a model for the rest of my life of how you've done this, I swear to God, is that you're going through what you're going through, this war that you're talking about and all the things that come with war. And you're going to have fun. (laughs) You're going, you're making decisions to go to the swimming pool with your kids and you're going to a, a folk festival and you're going to... I don't know. There's just a number of things I've seen you write down in this place you communicate, and think you really. And I've known people who don't do that, who can't get themselves to embrace joy, or beauty, or fun with their kids while they're while this is still going on. And yet, what's your choice? Yeah. So I'm just. I don't know if that's what you meant by dialectic, but it sort of stands from the outside. It stands out that. You've had to navigate kind of normal, keep normal life going, whatever that is, with your kids, your husband, your your community, and buckle down and do what you have to do for this illness.
1: It's, you know, I put a lot of intention and energy and and using my DVT skills to having joy and doing things that bring me joy while and to live while going through this treatment chemo in particular that feels like it's killing you like the thing that's that's saving your life feels like it's killing you and that's true for so many chemo's radiations across cancers um at so seth axelrod we didn't mention today but um he was my dbt mentor and and i know charlie you had done the podcast with him before at his funeral, uh, which was the day after my diagnosis in January, the phrase that many of his family members kept saying that Seth would say is like my favorite new dialectic. As bad as it is, it's as good as it can be. And I think that does something to, to both validate this is really fucking bad. Um, Cause just saying like, Oh, but look, look, you, you are stage three and not stage four um, invalidates. Well, stage three is really, really sucks. Um, and it's as good as it can be. And I've been, you know, one of our mindfulness skills is describing labeling experience. I've been putting a lot of effort into noticing the as good as it can be. And I think I, I kind of think of that as like a gratitude practice of what I do get to do, what I do have, what, what I'm gaining from it. I've seen, you know, quotes from from people saying, you know, I'm going to take more from cancer than it takes from me. And just having that mindset gives me something to do when I have total lack of control of, will these cancer meds actually help me or not?
0: Right, right.
1: So this right. phrase, the, as, as bad as it is, it's as good as it can be. It's got the validation of, yep, this is bad. And I, I think that's been really important to, to label and describe how uncomfortable, how how limiting it is, and, and what's good, bringing in the good being joy or humor or whatever, um, and holding them both at the same time. So I made it to Newport Folk Festival this past weekend. And overwhelmingly, I felt just so grateful that My surgery was scheduled two and a half weeks before, you know, a big part of why I went flat is the recovery time being faster. And so I could go to this festival, not knowing what would happen in years to come. And there was a moment where my friend Heather was holding my daughter, Charlie, because I I can't lift more than 10 pounds for another week now. And I felt sad. I felt like man, I want to hold Charlie. I want to snuggle her. This sucks. And realizing both things are true. It's, it's wonderful. I can't hold her and Heather can't Right? that Charlie gets to be here that we have a friend who can hold her that I made it to this concert. This is good compared to not being here. And oh man, like, yeah, that is sad. And then Mm -hmm. I problem solved and changed what I could is I, I got Charlie to sit on my lap on the floor. So, so I think that just like kind of shows how you get stuck when you have one side or the other and dialectics is a way to to get unstuck.
0: Well, you know, another thing that does, I hadn't thought of it until you were saying this, Andrew, but, and I know, and that phrase said, I was at that funeral. I heard that phrase repeated several times and I've heard you repeat it. And it's, it's very meaningful to me too. And what I realize when you give this example, it brings your mind into your present moment circumstance as opposed to your mind being stuck saying how the hell did this ever happen to me and and the fact is it did happen the fact happen. is it didn't happen it's sort of and yet i mean i've had these situations in my life not as dire as this particular one but sort of similar where i've just gotten caught for a while thinking but waking up and thinking how the hell did this happen to me what's why is this happening to me and that doesn't go anywhere else. It's just sort of digs its own hole. But when you start saying as bad as it is, then it is saying, yeah, this is hell. This unfortunate this happened. To me. And it's as good as it could be, which is like, oh, okay. This is as good, given everything. And it, it focuses your mind in this moment. And I'm thinking about, I was thinking about you before this podcast too, because I I, I listen a lot to the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and read them. And one of his best teachings, and, and there's multiple YouTubes where he talks about, and there's things in his writings about that the way to suffer less is to take good care of your suffering. Is mm-hmm. it, it, If you know how to suffer, you okay. will suffer less in your life. And he's a brilliant teacher of it. It's, he makes it sound so simple. But if you start stop when you're away from it and try to reconstruct it, it isn't as easy. But I think that it's a, a little bit like that. You have to let go. And just look into the suffering and be with it. And then it softens and then it opens the door to other things you can do now. But if you don't be with it, if you try to block it, if you try to run away from it or suppress it, it just keeps coming up through the back door. Yeah.
1: That that reminds me of, so, so I'm going to connect what you just shared that lesson. Yes. I actually haven't heard that phrase. I'm so happy you shared it. And it 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 gets me deep. Um, That's, that's right on the, so I shared with you the getting my PCR results Uh and a week after that, I continued on with my treatment of, it's called FESGO. It's an injection that I get every three weeks for, for a year. And it's, it's funny speaking about judgments and comparisons, you know, my, my oncologists and other people are like, oh, it's easy compared to chemo. Well, that doesn't really help me because it still sucks. <laughs> and so it brings up those judgments of when it's painful. And um, I actually, from on on the 18th, I had six episodes of diarrhea where I lost six pounds in one night. So as much as the FESGO is better than chemo, because I'm talking about a couple days instead of 18 weeks, you know, um, it. It still was rough. And so I, I think that just that highlights where comparisons lose information and I think can add on suffering. Yes. But anyway, I did, I did that on the 18th, and my veins are shot. So a lot of people going through chemo infusions get a port because my chemo is only six weeks. My oncologist said I didn't need to, and I or six six cycles, not six weeks. So I've been getting IVs. And I um had the third, fourth, I'm sorry, the fourth, fifth, and sixth chemos. It took the nurses uh, two or three times to get it in. And that, that brought up a tremendous amount of suffering for me. And so this injection didn't mean, they didn't need to get an IV in. They just needed to, actually, no, they had to do blood work is what it was. And blood work is a lot easier than an IV and still may not work. So on the 18th, my veins are tired from the chemo medicine. They're weak. And it was a different nurse than usual. I was recovering from COVID. I was only a week, a couple weeks out from COVID. And so I was in a special isolation room. And it took one try. She couldn't get the blood draw, which has never happened to me in my life, that they can't get a blood draw on the first try. They bring in another nurse the second time, can't do it. And I was feeling emotional. And I I said out loud with this nurse i had never met, my husband, I'm going to cry. And the nurse right away said, oh, no, don't cry. cry. She meant well. She (laughs) totally meant well. She didn't want me to suffer. I know that. And it was wicked and validating. And I felt like I couldn't be vulnerable in front of her. I needed to be. I needed to feel before I could be brave and get another needle stick in me that may or may not work. And I was in a room, I was in the same room where I had all those failed IV attempts. I had um, pain. I had bad news, all this stuff. So the environmental cues were bringing back those memories. And I went into the bathroom and I FaceTimed my best friend, Amy, who's, who's been with me for every other chemo. And I'm peeing and I'm FaceTiming her and just crying and crying and crying. And she just reflected it back. And I said, I don't want to do this. I want to go home. I don't want to do this. And I just knew that just moving forward on acceptance without giving me space of that non-acceptance was actually going to make things worse. And I I just needed some time. For my non-acceptance to be there and make sense, <laughs> and it of course it made sense that I didn't want to. I, I shouldn't want to. I was still going to do it. Accepting something doesn't mean you agree with it. Um, and so I, I think that is a really good example, Charlie, of, of the taking care of your suffering. I think I did that in those moments.
0: Yeah, I think you did that because I, I think crying is one way to take care of your suffering and calling a friend while you're crying and, and knowing that your friend will be supportive of that and won't tell you to stop crying. You know, is taking care of your suffering. It's, it's sort of the difference between if you have a fork in the road and one direction is I'm going to, I'm going to bypass my suffering. Uh, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let it get to me. I'm not going to get upset about it. And the other is just to go into it, let go of all of the um, escapes. I mean, you're familiar with, so so familiar with um, treatment with uh, exposure and stuff, but it's letting go of the escapes and letting yourself cry and letting yourself feel terrible. And because actually what that usually does is it allows a release afterwards. And I'm not saying it would every time. It might Mm -hmm. depend on your circumstance, but. Yeah, 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 yeah. Taking care of your suffering. You take such good you you're such a model for taking care of your suffering because you communicate it in detail. You also communicate what you're trying to do. And you also allow people to give input to you. And you also are are, are staying connected with, you know, Andrea's army of of friends with your captain Amy, you know, <laughs> whatever she she is within the army. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Chris, Captain Amy, yeah. Captain Captain Charlie, and Captain yeah. Olive. <laughs> all the captains are there. Yeah.
1: You yeah. know, I I made this connection while we were talking that you know it, with DBT we want to balance acceptance, change, and and the dialectics, and get all of them on board. And with describing my suffering and the as bad as it is and pain. That lets me let go of the suffering. One thing I learned from Seth was ways to self-validate. The first level is just to observe and describe. I don't want to do this. I'm terrified. I'm scared. I'm sad. I'm angry. That is actually a way to self-validate, just observing and describing your own experience when in hell, when in distress, because it's Mm -hmm. acknowledging that it makes sense and that it's there rather than the, Oh, don't cry or just, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You can then take it to higher levels of it makes, of course it makes sense that I'm terrified of, of this third blood draw failing because I'm already in so much pain from post surgery and it didn't happen. Um, Mm -hmm. Or, you know, anyone in this situation makes sense. And and it's, and it's the accepting the non-acceptance is how I can move forward and do it. Um, so I just, okay. I think self-validation, I wanted to just share, like it can be the, of, of course, and it makes sense given XYZ, but it can be just like describing your experience and just letting it be period without running to how you're going to change it.
0: Well, I'm, I'm reminded of before the fo- podcast started today and you and I were t- talking and you're saying, well,
1: <laughs> I did we're, <laughs>
0: we're going to do, we're going to do this but um but i'm in i'm in pain and that that was a form of self you were you were listening to yourself and giving yourself permission to tell me um and say to yourself i'm in pain and i know i'm in pain and i'm going to do the podcast uh i'm sad because this is the 6 month anniversary of Seth's funeral and i'm going to do the podcast it's kind of like you self-validate, you allow yourself to be, you allow yourself to experience your suffering in the moment. And then you do what you need to do, which is willingness. And it's really, um, I didn't realize that that at the time, but self-validation, that's such a good way you just taught it. Uh, for Not just for ca- cancer, but all kinds of situations.
1: I try to do that with myself. Um, and I like to also with people, um, you can't know that just by looking at me. Like you wouldn't be able to tell that I was in physical pain because I'm coming off my opiates, right? You, you wouldn't know that. Um, Or the thing about my thoughts connecting to missing Seth, given, given this anniversary. And so, um, you know, one thing I love about DBT so much is how it's, it's really teaching people to structure their environments and their relationships to do what's effective for them rather than, a blanket way. Like the, 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 nurse who said, don't cry for lots of people that would have been effective. That's right. That's Just right. Way, right. And so I think I've learned that and, and when to coach people on what I need or ask for what I need or express that it's, it's not all the time. Um, but in situations like doing this podcast with you, which is brings up anxiety, you know, I want to be able to like say, Hey, here's, here's where I am. And I think yeah. that really has helped me with facing the shit mountains and dif- different doors and corners of hell there, you know, through cancer that, that keep coming and expressing that to people.
0: It's interesting what you're saying about the crying because I, I there's another example. There was a. 13 year old girl I knew in our community and I've known her since she was three Be when she was brought over here from China. And uh, I've, been close to her and she both of her mothers passed away a long time ago and she was coping with loss and she was not crying and everybody around her was telling her she should be crying so it's sort of the opposite situation like she's and she called me one day and said would you come over and she i came to her house and we went for a walk together and she said i want to talk to you about something i don't know if i'm doing this right Because I should be sad and I am sad, but I'm not crying. And everybody around me keeps saying, but aren't you crying? And they think something's wrong with me. And it's sort of like it's the same thing. It's like it's how to, like you said, structure your life and and listen to the voices that say, yes, you can be the person who doesn't cry right now. But believe me, she cried later. I mean, I know it's it's been another 10 years now and uh, she's cried a lot, but she didn't cry the first six months. Mm -hmm um and so uh, so you know some people need to cry and some people don't need to cry right then and it's how to figure that out um but just to validate that you are who you are in the moment Thanks.
1: and i think there's these expectations of how it should be you should cry in in if someone dies or um you know Whatever. And so it comes back to, I think, mindfulness is our way to get to wise mind and to know and to be curious and mindful. And I think people, when I think a lot of these are just errors of kindness, um, where when people see other people in distress, they they want to fix it. Um, and if they think, well, holding it in for, for this 13 year old, you know, holding it, it isn't healthy, you've got to let it out. They're coming right to fixing it. Right. instead of um, being curious about what is the person's experience in that moment in that context, and that that it changes over time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: there there are there certain things you want to make sure and get to? we still have a good amount of time we could but I and I just you know, like I said to you at the beginning, I consider this mainly just me trying to be provide a platform for you to tell the world what you've been going through and how you've done it because you never know what's going to make a difference. I've done a lot of podcasts and I hear back from people months later on an email. I'll get an email from somebody driving in Sweden saying, I listened to your podcast about this and you were talking about this and something that I had no idea would make a difference. So I just want you to be feel open. Not that this is the last time because we can talk again, but um,
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I think just to kind of wrap it up, I'm, I'm now going on to this next phase where cancer is out of my body. And I don't even know what to say. Am I supposed to say I have cancer or I don't have cancer? I'm figuring that out, like the language that works for me. Oh. Um, is my... it like, uh,
0: like alcoholism or something? You can say I have cancer in recovery?
1: I don't know. I need that's I just actually to learn that. I just learned today there's a cancer con. I had no idea, but that sounds fun and cool. Um, but you know, I'm entering this new phase of radiation, which I need to now learn about and and do. And you know, learning the risk of recurrence. My oncologist said it's the highest in the next five years. It goes down the subsequent five years, and then it's it's 0% after 10. Um, and so what's scary is I, I kind of flesh this out with her. If I have a recurrence, we're talking about metastatic cancer. We're, we're not talking about a cancer like the one I had or an early stage, but one that's spread outside my breast and is incurable. And that
0: that's, oh, I didn't know that. Me.
1: And so she said, yeah. it's, you know, given that I had the PCR, it's only, five to 7%, which again, it's dialectics are how you what perspective you're looking at it from 95 ish percent is wonderful. And, you know, so it's, it's low and it's way too, it's way too low. It's too, it's low in a good way and it's way too high. And so, um, you know, one thing I'm doing to cope is, is to, to live full force to plan for the future, even though it's not certain. um, And to try to find, the the lemonade of, of looking at it and and take things i can from this experience but one thing i'm doing is with with amy my best friend we're actually going to put together a savings account to put a deposit in every month for the next 10 years so that in 10 years from now we're going to have a huge party cancerversary and there's something about that that making it fun making a game out of it you know i think i think there's, there's a lot of very much like sad, depressing tone when it comes to cancer. But in the adolescent, young adult communities, I see a lot of, of jokes and humor and making fun and games. Like every single visit to Dana-Farber, whoever's with me will play The Price is Right on my blood pressure or my hemoglobin levels. <laughs> and so you have to guess, you know, the closest without going over. Um, and uh. they, just finding these games and traditions have helped me move forward in all of this.
0: Yeah,
1: And I recommend that if you you can and if it's your style and and your own thing. um, Finding a way to cope before treatment that extends beyond it has been really useful. So for chemo, it was a puzzle that I was working on, a cat puzzle, um, that I started it and I could keep going. So it wasn't that this treatment thing happened and I had to take the bandwidth to find something out or have it be a new thing. But it was a way of acknowledging you know, I'm never going to go back to normal, but there's still part of me that did this before and after with my mm-hmm. mastectomy, it was getting into the Marvel cinematic universe and finding really cool Marvel metaphors for, for my cancer battle and, and journey and all that.
0: Did you uh, pick that up from, from Seth, who modeled himself after Iron Man you know, you as know, he went through it?
1: It was my friend, Andrew um, was really like, I, I think I asked a lot of people for TV things. Cause part of it is just acknowledging like, there are going to be days and times where I'm not going to do anything productive and I'm going to watch TV and I'm not going to judge myself for it. I'm just going to kind of all in enjoy it. And I knew surgery would be a big time. And he's been, um, he's, he's been wanting me to get into the MCU as they call it for years. So he made me a spreadsheet of all the movies in order and different ratings of who I could skip and so just yeah. fun and games and asking people for help in different ways. Like people think, okay, I'll bring you dinner. But here I, I can ask Andrew, like, can you make me a color coded spreadsheet with numbers, you know, that I can I can use to navigate the Marvel Universe? It's thinking about creative ways, because people want to help. They often don't know how and it, it can be for fun things like that, too. Um, and it helped that Seth and his Iron Man metaphor was a way to also feel connected with him through that. So it was important not, to start yeah. it before and then continue it after.
0: You know another thing that you and Seth have in common, I think, was I remember when he was going through his various clinical trials, and he'd have to go here and he'd have to go there. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, he would go like to a clinical trial in Boston, and then on the way he would stop off and do a, a performance with a group of madrigal singers because he was a singer, and he liked that. So even while he's on his way to the next potentially painful and trial without, with complete uncertainty about, he's, he's joining madrigal groups or reconnecting with people and singing and making up uh, Iron Man jokes about, and so it's sort of, you know, macabre, macabre humor or something. But um, there, you know, you, you, you seem to have a similar kind of penchant.
1: I feel like it's 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 this moment is the only thing that exists and choosing to live this moment. And it's not waiting for the pain to go down to experience joy. A lot of people will wait till they feel better to to do things. And this comes up with physical pain a lot and with depression, um, which is a different kind of pain that's just as real. That, that the treatment, one of the, the you know, most evidence-based gold standard treatments for depression behavioral activation is doing things that prompt joy and build mastery, even, especially when you don't feel like it. And so I feel like I actually, I had days, I had to take steroids each of my six cycles that would bring raging irritability and, and depression in a mood kind of thing. I had those that I, I figured out skills for and how to get through it. I had, I had depression as like moods on the steroid days. But throughout this six months, looking back, like it's striking to me, I haven't been depressed. And I think depression is a very common experience that comes with cancer for for valid reasons. And I had the gift and the luxury of learning DBT 15 years ago and practicing this as, as a psychologist where the the doing things that bring joy and mastery have been huge. So, so gardening is mastery, making wreaths, um, different things. I feel like that's my full-time job right now.
0: I want to ask you a couple questions. Uh, one is, uh, I was thinking when I was going over and thinking of all the skills you've used, and I was thinking how many of the skills in the, you know, the acronym of improve, the moment skills, and one of them, um, I mean, imagery is one, the first one. And of course, it, it sounds like you've used imagery for one thing, maybe in many ways, but that right there and, and just having these kind of... Um, T- television series or movie series, and having imagery about that but and and then there's prayer is the p in improve and i guess I guess though you've talked about wise mind, I wonder, would you say that you've used prayer in order to cope with all of this? Have depends you reached to a higher means. a higher power or something like that
1: it depends yeah, it depends what prayer means i I personally am not i don't you know believe in a religion i think. I think, I think Marcia has in the handout, like to your, ask your own wise mind or look to your own wise mind in the P it's
0: one option. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that hell yeah. All the way I have used, I have used that. Over time. Okay. I think Um, improved the moment is one of the biggest ones I've used. And I, what I like about it is, in, in distress tolerance, you've got the two opposites of crisis survival, getting space from the crisis and mm-hmm. the reality acceptance getting up close and personal and improve is kind of a synthesis in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the meaning one has been one of my biggest ones. I wore my lemon earrings today intentionally for making oh. lemonade out of lemons.
0: Yes. Good.
1: Um, while acknowledging that, you know, that the pain is there. And, and the one thing in the moment just is is huge when you have so much suffering from the past and the future to just suffer this moment comes back to what we were talking about there, too.
0: You know, and one of the nice things about the improved skills, if you're in a lot of pain or you're in a lot of suffering, is that um, you don't need anything else. They're they're self-sufficient. That you, you could be laid up in pain, not able to do anything, go anywhere. You can't look Go get something to soothe yourself. But these are like all skills you can just do while you lie there. Um, they're, they're mostly things you do in your mind.
1: And they don't require other people.
0: And they don't require other people.
1: So when I yeah. work with with clients, often teens, skills when we're building like a crisis survival kit or a self-soothing kit, you know, we're planning a cope ahead. A lot of the skills that they want to do involve things or going somewhere, like you said, or involve other people. And so I like to be mindful of helping people have skills that they could do with or without things, that they could do with or without people, and that they can do any time, hmm. kind of just at any moment, because you never know, you know when you're gonna need it.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Here's my. here's the other thing I was thinking about. Um, when I think of the different people I know who've gone through really this kind of hell, either medical hell or sort of life-threatening hell of different kinds, Um, the choice of whether you depend on other people during that time, whether you lean on other people, whether you tell your story to other people and let them take care of you, or whether you sort of huddle into yourself and pull away from other people because you don't want to be seen as that person or you're ashamed of yourself or something like that. It seems like it's an important choice. I've known people who've gone both directions you you've really as far as I can tell gone the direction of allowing the people who care about you to care about you and to do things for you and 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 Seth also I think did that in his own way though he had a whole different i think orientation than you about that he was seemed like a very self-sufficient sort and mm-hmm. I think you are too but maybe in a different person and but but it's kind of like how is that something that just came naturally to you to just lean into other people you've got this caring bridge thing where you can you can tell your story every day and people can respond and people do respond you're on a podcast for christ's sake you're telling the world about this and and you and you and you reach out to your best friend amy in in these key moments is that now just natural for you is that the way you already were or has it required some effort for you to kind of make sure you stay connected and don't go into isolation
1: well, I want to say it's not for everyone. Like, I want to—I don't want to say like I think everybody should lean out in this way. It's really what right, works right, right. for you and your your wise mind. It's a good um, point. I, for me, I am—I'm extremely affiliative and connected to people. And in times of stress and facing this thing that feel felt so impossible, I knew it was going to take take a lot. I knew that there were risks. Like I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, hopefully I finish radiation, I finish the fesgo and I'm I'm cancer free, like are people going to treat me differently in the future because I have cancer? Um yes and no, I'm sure is the answer because everything's a, you know, a dialectic, but there is this risk that I'm taking of, you know, will I be judged? Will I be treated differently? <sighs> It's, it's a pros and cons, and, and I think I really like in the second edition skills manual how Marsha puts a pros and cons before each manual to, to think about that for, for skills. And so I knew I was taking risks. Um, I, I really like – I learned a lot of this from Seth, and I made it my own wise mind as, as the balance of both emotion and both reason is both this intuitive knowledge of just just gut reaction, things you know, and it's based on experience, so those are opposites, right? Intuitive and based on experience. And so I was mindful of having these experiences, putting myself out there, being scared, but being being willing. You know, I learned this from you, Charlie, being willing to succeed and willing to fail. And if something failed, if it didn't work, well, I wouldn't do it again. Um, but really, kind of having it be an iterative process where I learned from that experience. And if things get rewarded, great. If they don't. You know, thinking about it, and and I think this is where I have, again, I'm grateful for my DBT uh, toolbox, like a behavioral chain analysis of really, really looking back and learning from it so I could do things differently in the future. Okay. So, um, okay. it's, it's making decisions and taking chances because there's definitely exposures involved with being so so public and so open and asking for help. Um but making them based on what's known and not letting fears of what might happen, stop you. Cause often I think we, we make choices of avoiding things because, well, what if this thing happens? Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, do we have time for an example or uh, tell me what?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think we have about four or five more minutes. So comfortably. Okay
1: so i'm going to i'm going to share this example and then i am eager to hear your reactions and questions and so it also comes comes back to you know pushing myself putting myself out there uh-huh. um, involving exposure so back when i was pregnant with charlie i had an ob we were we were relatively new to providence we tried this ob i didn't like the guy he was not a match for me i felt totally totally invalidated I was nervous to switch doctors because that's awkward to say, Hey, I'm not seeing you. And I worked up the nerve. There was an exposure element of asserting myself in doing this. And that day before I could tell him, he tells me, Hey, you know, I just, you know, I joined this call group with this other center. And so, you know, when you, when you go into labor, it, it could be me. It could be these other people. Well, guess what? That was the center where I wanted to to switch to. <laughs> yeah. And so I lost my nerve and didn't do it. And after the fact, it was like, well, well, what? I can't, I can't switch because then what if he's the one to deliver my baby? That would be so awkward. And you know, what it came down to is what is known is I don't like seeing this guy. He shakes my husband's hand and not mine. That doesn't fit with my values. I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. What's known is over the nine months I'll see someone else and not him. What's unknown, that fear, that risk, is he might be the one to deliver her anyway. And so I worked up the nerve and 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 I did it and um You did what? I, I broke up with my OB. You broke I broke up. And okay. And it was really awkward and I did it and I felt good. Uh, I told my teens I was teaching a, a teen skills group, and I told them uh, with interpersonal effectiveness, dear man, and fast skills, and they they loved it. So fast <laughs> forward, so it's the right choice to switch at least. Fast forward, I'm supposed to have a C-section on Wednesday because Charlie was breech. On Monday, my water broke. We get to the hospital. There's 20 docs on the call list. It was the original one. And so, <laughs> exposure and my answer when I said I said who's on who's here and they told me and I said fuck okay we're doing this exposure is you know you fear this threat this danger this bad thing there's some kind of threat and it's it's acknowledging you know anxiety or whatever emotions inhibiting us are getting in the way is saying this bad thing's gonna happen and exposure may be that it doesn't like for example, I I may worry that people are going to judge me for for things that I said about going flat that may or may not happen. But through experience, I'll learn. And maybe we learn how bad it is. Like, do we do we predict it's worse? You know, is it worse than it actually is? So so my daughter Olive I shared with you was really nervous about going in the pool last time, and then she went in and she's like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I I had habituation, mommy. You know, um, and so it wasn't as bad as she thought. And then the third thing is, it did happen. My prediction was right. It was as bad as I thought, and I could tolerate it. And that's the one I had with giving birth to Charlie. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sure how I got here with all this, but but just the if I had let my fear of what if, what if this this bad thing happened that this doc delivered Charlie, kept me from from leaving well, not only would I have had that bad thing, but I would have been with someone I didn't want to be with all the way versus, right? I got better OB care along the way. That was a fit for me. And so I feel like that is relevant to to living with cancer, living with hell, living with emotions too and making choices and something that um, you need to take mindful moments to observe what you need, what you're feeling, what you want, how are people responding? What are they saying to you? Seeing what's really there, you know, without, without mindfulness, when we're in emotion mind, you know, things add information that's not there and takes away information that is and mindfulness ways to kind of get a clear picture. And so I think that's a lot Is a very long winded answer to your question of how I built up this army and these connections and why I did it.
0: Well, it, it isn't just a long-winded answer. It's a very, it's, a, it's another really interesting thing that when you, well, that's a great story. I'll remember that OB story. Um, unfortunately, you know, I steal stories from other people like from Marshall. I can't steal this one. I'm, I just, it's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I, I could change it. But, but what I like about it is that when you did exposure and in the moment, you took care of that moment you took care of yourself and the, and your better self the self that wanted to have an ob that would shake your hand you know that wouldn't just shake your husband's hand and and thing and everything else that goes with that i mean you took care of the moment you did sort of you you stayed aligned with your values and you did a hard thing knowing there could be a a future consequence and then you'll take care of that consequence then but you strengthened yourself by doing that in the moment. And, and you, and, and, and the future is a concept. It isn't. And the, the moment is a reality. So we do, we're so many decisions we make based on a concept of the future. And you had to make so many decisions about your cancer, where in the moment you had to make a decision now about this moment and took care of it based on everything you could do, all the projections of the future and the, feelings, your, your wise mind, your reasonable mind, your emotion mind, and then you go for it. And that I think that that's a sort of an exposure way of living life. Um, yeah. You go for it. And then you find out later, you know what, that thing I imagined didn't happen, or else it did happen, but it wasn't that bad anyway. And right. thank God I took care of myself.
1: Right.
0: I think it's a great yeah, lesson.
1: That happened again. Actually, my visiting nurse had had looked at me, I had, I had my shirt off while she was checking out my wounds, and she goes, have you, have you thought about what you're going to do after you're healed? And she moved her hand back and forth over her own breasts, and I knew what she was hinting at. I didn't like that she was being indirect, and I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know what you're going to do, and I said, <laughs> do about what? And self-respect-wise, it didn't feel good to just answer a question that she wasn't actually asking.
0: Yeah, yeah. And she right. said,
1: you know, some women will get get reconstruction. And I said, nope, I'm I'm going flat. And I actually called the the company to give the feedback that like that didn't feel good and hope hoping that it could help women in the future. And um the supervisor I spoke with said would would, you know or I actually asked her, I was like, Hey, you know, actually, you know, I was, it wasn't a good match with this visiting nurse. You know, could I get someone else? She's, she said, sure. It, the supervisor didn't communicate it. And then that person came back afterwards. So it's another example, like that OB story, right? I could have avoided this because this bad That's thing right. might not happen, but yeah, I'm right. care of myself right now based on what, what is known.
0: I think most of us avoid a lot of those things. Um, I, by the way, just two things to close, two trivial things to close, because this has been such heavy stuff. <laughs> One is, um, I can't remember what it's about, but I think if you don't already know it, you probably know it because you seem like the kind of person who would know this. The whole series of books called Flat Stanley. Uh-uh,
1: um,
0: I don't know it. Yeah. Look, I don't know what it was about, but it wasn't about breast reconstruction questions, <laughs> But it, but it might be fun to look at what Flat Stanley is because you could write a you could do a little story of Flat Andrea, you know, and and uh, see if it, it parallels the Flat and, and Stanley series, which made made someone a lot of money because a lot of people bought it for for children. Okay. And the other thing I'm just thinking about, and I I just didn't want to say it earlier, but I just love that not only has it been great to be getting to know you through this and to see somebody with your courage and your skill at doing these things, which I really mean seriously. But also, I love that you named your child after me. You know? <laughs> Charlie and I, we're like this. You know, yes. we're like this. So, no, I lo- i don't know many Charlies. And I really appreciate that you named your child Charlie, even though it wasn't for me. and um, And that it's a girl, Charlie. You know, right. that there's, you know. So, anyway, it's where been very it be? nice to talk to you. And we can, and you and I talked about doing this again and possibly doing one where, We follow up and also be able to invite someone else or even more than one person, but definitely Amy, if she's interested and able to do it and to talk about what it's been like to be a friend going through cancer.